Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. So authors and publishers eagerly await every single Wednesday because that's when they get an advanced look at the weekly New York Times bestseller list. Might be interested to know on the list for June the 21st. So this is the list that dropped yesterday. It is um, a radically different list than both authors and publishers might have expected just a few weeks ago. So the New York Times, I mean, no, there's lots of ways to... Read the New York Times bestseller list or not read it. I get that. I am trying to make a cultural point here uh, because this is a pretty vivid snapshot of the America in which we live today, which has suddenly woken up to a conversation uh, for which obviously a lot of people want to be equipped. And so people are reading different books and different authors than they might have been reading just a few weeks ago. So this this is the top 10 from the combined print and ebook nonfiction list. So that would be the list that I would ordinarily look to because that's the list that is is ordinarily writings at the intersection of religion and politics and the headlines of the day and sort of what uh what the thinkers of the day are thinking about. So the current top 10 list for the New York Times combined print and ebook nonfiction list. Number 1, White Fragility by uh, Robin DeAngelo. Number two, So You Want to Talk About Race, by Yamo Alau. Uh, three, How to Be an Anti-Racist, by Ibram Kendi. Four, Me and White Supremacy, by Lila Saad. Five, The New Jim Crow, by Michelle Alexander. Six, The Color of Law, by Richard Rothstein. Seven, Between the World and Me, by Tahata. Tanahishi Coates. I should know how to say his name. Number eight, Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Number nine, Stamped from the Beginning, also by Ibram Kendi. And then number 10 is Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. And Just Mercy, you may have seen, turned into uh, a movie of late. And so there's one that you could watch as a movie instead of just read as a book. So what are you reading? To whom are you listening? What are you learning? Um, And what are you saying? How are you speaking into the concerns and issues of the day? Um, And for those of you who are now dealing with generational conversations that you have long sought to avoid, um, let me just say we can no longer avoid the conversations of the day. It's time to engage. It's time to uh, listen. It's time to acknowledge to others that they are heard. And it's time to keep listening. Let me uh, let me just make this transition here by reading um, a poem. It's unusual for me, I know, but uh, I am reading Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes is an African American poet. He died in 1967. Langston Hughes has uh, several poems relevant to the days in which we live. Here's one: Let America be America again. 
Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plane seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great, strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. It never was America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. Say, who are you that mumbles in the dark, and who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I am the poor, white, fooled, and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog-eat-dog of mighty crush the weak. I am the young man full of strength and hope, tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, of grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab the way of satisfying need, of work the man, of take the pay, of owning everything for one's own greed. I am the farmer, bondsman to the soil. I am the worker, sold to the machine. I am the Negro, servant to you all. I am the people, humble, hungry, mean, hungry yet today despite the dream, Beaten yet today, oh, pioneers, I am the man who never got ahead. The poorest worker bartered through the years. Yet I'm the one who dreamt our basic dream. In the old world, while still a serf of kings, who dreamt a dream so strong, so brave, so true, that even yet its mighty daring sings, in every brick and stone, in every furrow turned, that's made America the land it has become— Oh, I'm the man who sailed those early seas in search of what I meant to be my home. For I'm the one who left dark Ireland's shores and Poland's plain and England's grassy lay. And torn from black Africa's strand, I came to build a homeland of the free. The free? Who said the free? Not me. Surely not me. The millions on relief today? The millions shot down when we strike? The millions who have nothing for our pay? For all the dreams we've dreamed, all the songs we've sung, all the hopes we've held, all the flags we've hung, the millions who have nothing for our pay except the dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has she been, and yet must be, the land where every man is free, the land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me, Who made America? Whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain must bring back our mighty dream again? Sure, call me an ugly name you choose. The feel of freedom does not stain. For those who like leeches on the lives of people, we take back our land again, America. Oh, yes. I say it plain. America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath. America will be. And the last stanza. Out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies, we the people must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains, and the endless plain. All, all stretch of these great green states and make America again. We'll be right back.
This is my right A right given by God To live a free life To live in freedom The dream to live in freedom is every man's dream. Here to uh, talk again with us today, Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. Ben, welcome back. Good to be with you, Carmen. Okay, sorry, I robbed you of a little of your time there um, to read Langston Hughes' uh, poem. Talk with us today about um, rioting and broken windows and our ministry today. Yes, well, of course, we've seen the riots, and and many in uh, Minneapolis, unfortunately, have been in ground zero for where these began, uh, following a very justified outrage over what happened to George Floyd. During, uh, During this time, when I wrote the article, there had been an estimated $100 million worth of damage. Most recent estimate is at least $400 million uh, of damage in just 20 cities that have experienced this. We know that at least 150 cities across the country and even more around the world, including London and Paris, Berlin, Hamburg, Germany, other cities around the world have experienced riots and sometimes sometimes violence that has uh, been associated with that as well. This total amount, uh, people always look for the bright side, that uh, perhaps there's a good side to this, that it will create jobs, because when you burn down a store, that means you have to rebuild it. And uh, I've seen a whole series of these articles, and I just had to say, this is actually one of the oldest economic fallacies known to man. It's called the broken windows fallacy. And uh, it goes back at least to 1850 from a French writer named Frederick Bastier, Uh, In his example, it was accidental. When it was updated 100 years later in a book called Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, uh, he made it an act of of hooliganism that someone had deliberately broken a window. It holds the same either way. The idea is that, yes, it's true. If uh, if someone's shop is broken and the shopkeeper decides to rebuild, which is not going to happen in many of these cases, many of these businesses are going to go out of business. But if they decide to rebuild, it's true, they'll, they'll spend money on contractors and windows and other necessities, restocking items that have been looted. It's true, but that doesn't build anything. All that does is replenish the stock that was already extant before the riots. Actual economic activity means that you, you build on top of it. So what people are not seeing is if the person hadn't had to spend the money that they would need to rebuild their shop, restore the windows, restock the shelves... They could have hired additional workers, or they could have opened another shop, or they could stock even more items, and so you'd have even more economic activity than you would if you hadn't burned down the shop in the first place. It's called the broken window fallacy, and it should be very simple for those of us who are who are Christians. God is a God of creativity. He speaks, and creation occurs. And we, as, as you know, little uh, followers of Christ who have God living within us, have the spark of creativity within us. We don't create ex nihilo as Christ does, but when we create, we, we have the same creative effort to share in this creativity, to make new things. And so destruction never brings about either uh, God's, God's will and creativity upon this earth, nor does destruction bring about anything that's truly positive uh, for others around the world. So, so Christians should understand, something that kills and destroys does not do something that is positive even if you're desperately looking for a silver lining. You guys can read um, Riots and the Broken Window Fallacy at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. You can follow Ben um, on Twitter at The Rights Writer. 
Um, ben, I'm wondering when we come back, can we um, can we pivot our conversation from things here in the U.S. to things in um, in Hong Kong um, and and related to Hong Kong in terms of how people there um, are going to have to be helped from those of us on the outside? Would you be willing to do that? I'd be happy to talk. I'd be thrilled to talk about some of the challenges they're facing. Thank you. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Your plans still prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fight and the flood. All right, continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can find him at Acton, A C T O N dot O R G. Um, ben, it occurs to me that while we are paying such uh, close attention, now, uh, necessarily so, to things here at home, we have sort of collectively taken our eye off the ball uh, on things around the world, and um, and China is literally up to no good in Hong Kong. Um, talk with us about what's happening in Hong Kong and um, what some others are doing to help. Yeah, the historical perspective, just very quickly, is that uh, the United Kingdom handed Hong Kong over to China in 1997 with an understanding there'd be one nation and two systems. Hong Kong would retain all of its democratic and capitalist freedom and would be integrated into the uh, Chinese system over the next 50 years. China has very quickly moved to renege on that promise and uh, to take away the right of, uh, of determination uh, of elections. And now it's passed what's known as a security law. The National People's Congress last month would, for the first time, allow Red China to establish security forces in Hong Kong to enforce Chinese law. There's also an extradition law that... Uh, Hong Kong, people from Hong Kong would be tried in courts in mainland China, where the courts are controlled by the Communist Party. Uh, that one was was withdrawn, but the security law has gone through. Also, Hong Kong, to give you an idea of what security uh, means to them, passed a law that if you disrespect the Chinese national anthem, uh, according to the authorities, they get to determine whether you disrespect it or not, you could spend up to three years in prison and be fined $7,000. So that's what's happening. There have been massive protests, as you can imagine, from people from Hong Kong desperate to, to keep their liberties. Dozens were arrested on the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square incident. Uh, and on, in addition to that, there's been a massive exodus of people trying to leave Hong Kong. Uh, every nation in the surrounding area, Australia, the UK, Canada, and the United States, have seen a massive spike in applications from people in Hong Kong. Uh, there, quite often, people from uh, who live in Hong Kong will invest in order to gain citizenship. Today, they're not even asking how much they need to invest. They're simply saying, "What do I need to do? I will give you any amount of money to get out of here before the Chinese news finally closes on us." The good news is, of course, uh, you've seen. In the United States, there's been a move to recognize that Hong Kong is losing its freedom and to highlight that from Secretary Mike Pompeo. In the UK, citizenship has been offered to anyone who would be eligible for a British passport, a British national overseas passport that it would be about almost 3 million people, about 40% of the population of Hong Kong could move and become citizens of the UK. I don't know if that's the best answer uh, to, to the problem that's facing here, but it shows that nations in the West, the U.S. and the U.K., uh, and others, uh, uh, Japanese uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe expressed his concerns today. So there is increasing attention to what's happening here and to the crackdown that's happening on freedoms in Hong Kong by the Chinese. This is a really extraordinary offer 
um, by uh, by Boris Johnson and the UK to allow some, you know, potentially 40 percent of the population of Hong Kong to immigrate uh, to the UK. I mean, that's a really extraordinary that is that's that's just one of those world changing kinds of or conversation changing kinds of offers. Like, let's let's change the game China's playing by saying, hey, the greatest resource you have in Hong Kong is the people and we're going to provide for them a way out. Like, that's really extraordinary. It truly is. And then you would have two superpowers in the financial industry. Hong Kong is is one of the top leading uh, financial centers in the world. And the city of London is always one or two, depending on where Wall Street ranks. If if you would have a brain drain of bankers going from Hong Kong to the city, you would have the world's leading superpower of financial services. You'd also have people who understand what freedom means and uh, the real game behind Chinese communism, the fact that communism does not lead to liberty. Uh, Democratic socialism always ends up losing the modifier and keeping the socialism. They would understand that, and that would, I think, change the the general tenor of the conversation toward China. Uh, This is extraordinary in part because Boris Johnson during the Brexit campaign was derided as the biggest racist in the universe, uh, which was always slanderous toward him. He's actually very pro-immigration. He was mayor of London, which has the largest immigrant population in uh, in one of the largest immigrant populations in the world, certainly in the UK. Uh, and here he's he's offering to uh, uh, this would essentially be about five percent of the uh, British population would suddenly be from Hong Kong. If if he were to uh, to go forward with this, so uh, I think that also gives us an understanding of uh, being very careful about uh, whom we deride as racist when uh, the facts could be quite different. Immigration is always uh, a sensitive conversation, and it's not lost on me that there are those who will not leave Hong Kong um, for a myriad uh, of reasons. Um, Christians are are the least likely to depart because they've. Uh, they have a sense of being called to be light, even um, as darkness encroaches. Uh, I know we have been called upon by our Christian brothers and sisters in Hong Kong to pray for them. And so, uh, you know, we're we're cognizant of that. We're aware of that. Um, and so, you know, as you're listening today, be praying for our Christian brothers and sisters in Hong Kong. Also be praying that uh, China would be awakened to the truth of the gospel, the reality of God. I mean, communist, I mean, the greatest thing that could possibly happen would be that the communist regime in China would fall one way or another. Um, and and in so doing, um, people would be set free, and that would be, um, that would be really wonderful and miraculous. Uh, at this point, the noose is tightening around Hong Kong, and we want to um, be celebrating those who are thinking creatively about providing a way forward short of war, because I think that's, you know, right? What Boris Johnson is offering is a way out short of war. It is. And you put your finger on the most important thing, which is that the church in China is growing. The institutional church and the true church, the underground church, are both growing like wildfire. And the nation cannot long survive half slave and half free. Sooner or later, the atheistic regime in China, which is trying to control the church and the body of Christ, are in which are currently locked in a spiritual battle, will come to a head, spiritually speaking, and Christ will prevail. So let us pray for our, our, for our brethren that uh, the government will recognize the freedom that God has given them, and that God has implanted in every human being because of the freedom and the fact that we are created in the image of Christ. This is what human nature means. To truly be a human being means to be able to live out our vocation.
Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you, brother. As always, we appreciate it. That's Ben Johnson. You can find him at Acton, A-C-T-O-N. Uh, we've been talking today about a couple of pieces he has posted. Little England comes to Hong Kong's rescue, as well as riots and the broken window fallacy, black looting, a victim, our business is our ministry. Um, all kinds of great stuff posted at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. We'll be right back. Okay, we all recognize the need um, for things to be different. Um, And we've heard, you know, the phrase, you know, be the change you want to see. Well, what does transformation look like? What does it look like for for you and I as Christians to engage in in that which is genuinely transformational? Um, We're going to talk next with Carl Nelson from Transform Minnesota about what Minneapolis churches are doing in the wake of George Floyd's death and the riots uh, and how that really casts a vision for the rest of us. Carl Nelson, up next on Mornings with Carmen. All right, so that was the sweet voice of my colleague, uh, Susie Larson. If, if you go right now to MyFaithRadio.com, one of the things you can sign up for is the fully live online Bible study with Susie Larson. It's completely free. Um, Susie's doing it over the course of 10 weeks. Uh, here's, the, here's the little lead-in posted on the website. Did you, do you know what happens in our souls also then happens in our cells? You've just come through an unprecedented season. How are you doing? Does your soul need to be restored? Join us online for the study of Fully Alive, Learning to Flourish, Mind, Body, and Spirit. So sign up today. You just go to uh, MyFaithRadio.com. You just click on the, uh, uh, it's a a part of the rolling banner, right? You just click on it and you can sign up for this 10-week study. You'll get two devotional emails each and every week with special content from Susie's book, um, Reflection Questions and More, the study Um, begins on Monday, July the 6th. So you still got a couple of weeks to sign up, but why wait? Why don't you just go to MyFaithRadio.com and sign up right now for the Fully Alive Online Study Bible, Study Bible, Study uh, Fully Alive Online Study with Susie Larson. You got to bring your own Bible to this one. Although we are giving away Bibles. We always give away Bibles. The June Bible giveaway is uh, the CSB He Reads Truth Study Bible. So there you go. All right, we'll be right back. Did your parents ever use this line when you were a kid? Do as I say, not as I do. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. It may sound good in theory, but in reality, kids base their habits and attitudes on what they see, not on what they hear. For example, if parents aren't grateful, their children won't be either. When moms and dads don't know how to handle conflict, neither will their kids. And if parents never demonstrate self-control, well, you get the point. Hey. I know that nobody's perfect, but this week, take my challenge to reflect on a kind of legacy you're leaving. Do you practice what you preach, or is it just talk? As parents, let's be godly examples to our families and both say and do what's right. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org.
What does it mean to rise together? That's a good question. Uh, joining us now, Carl Nelson from Transform Minnesota. You can find them online at transformmn.org, although I w- really want to recommend you go to their Facebook page, Transform Minnesota, um, so that you can get live updates on how you can engage right now, today, in this collaborative work that God is doing um, through Christians in the greater Minneapolis area. Carl, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, good morning, Carmen. Great to be with you today. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. Um, It's one of those conversations where I don't really quite know where to start. I want to talk with you about the last few weeks uh, in the Twin Cities. Maybe we'll start with um, you attended the memorial service there for, uh, for George Floyd. Just maybe give us a little insight into what that experience was like. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it was a moving and, uh, and maybe surreal experience to, you know, be there. Uh, I was in one of the overflow rooms and, you know, to, to realize that uh, in many ways, the eyes of the nation and the eyes of the world were on our city and to, to just have a sense of, um, you know, humility to realize that what, what happened in our city um, has has repercussions around the world, and I, so I was really, um, you know, I was really encouraged and maybe lifted up by by some of the messages that were shared and said, you know, maybe that weren't even seen on the on the broadcast, but by by various pastors and leaders who were present there, and even by the by the presence of um, a lot of. of Catholic and evangelical and mainline Protestant ministers and denominational leaders that showed up simply because we we recognize this is a this has to be a turning point in our history in America um, for us as the church particularly um, to say we we can't do this again we we have to turn this cannot happen again and so I went because. Um, you know, I, I had really, I have no connection to, you know, George Floyd or his family, um, no personal connection, but I went because I, I knew this was a historic moment. And, you know, when I look back later in my life, um, hopefully on what will be a different future, um, I wanted to say that I was there. All right. I am talking with uh, Carl Nelson from Transform Minnesota. You can follow them on Twitter at Transform MN. You can also uh, do so on Facebook. That's the one I I'm just really recommending people engage um, on Facebook, Transform MN, uh, in order that you can see just really, really frequent posts there, uh, live updates on what's happening. Um, So on June the 2nd, you did a pastor's community briefing. Um, That's really cool. Um, I'm also reading in Christianity Today this really just excellent article uh, entitled, George Floyd Protests Mark a Turning Point for Minneapolis Evangelicals. Talk with us about that. Yeah. You know, I am. I actually am hopeful. I was with some friends last night processing the last couple of weeks, and uh, you know, they they asked me. You know, this is this is hard. I mean, there's a lot of pushback, but you know what? I'm hopeful at the same time because here's what I've seen. I have seen among white evangelical Christians a higher level of engagement, a higher level of response, a higher level of acknowledgement that um, the underlying ideology and systems in our country and in our country's history that have allowed the death of George Floyd to take place um, need to be addressed. And I think it has, you know, the particular situation 
in dynamics around you know George Floyd's death raise this to a new level of awareness and so i'm i'm hopeful and i think i would agree with the you know the title of of you know christianity today's article um that i i do think this is a turning point you know i said and you know we we had a pastor's briefing you know video conference that morning nearly 300 leaders together and i started that off by saying you know we need to mark may 25th 2020 the memorial day the day that george floyd was killed we need to mark that and remember that as a turning point for us in the church. We cannot go back. And I, I see more and more response by leaders stepping up to that challenge and being able, being willing to engage in the really hard discussions that uh, need to be part of that turning point. We, we cannot turn back. I'm, you know, Carl, one of the things that I observe is that there's really, there's, there's hard work to do. This notion that, you know, you put your hand to the plow and you don't look back, um, there's there's ground to be plowed. There is, uh, you know, there there is hard earth to be turned. There are hard hearts to be um, and stiff necks and closed minds um, that will need to be confronted. Yeah. And those of us who are Christians um, and who've now set our hand to this plow, um, I'm I'm just. I'm just acutely aware that um, we have in the past become easily distracted. Um, I grew up in Tampa uh, in 1987, which is the year after I graduated from high school. There were riots. Well, what was the provocation of those riots? Well, it was the unjustified killing of three black men at the hands of police mm -hmm. officers. Um, you know, that's a long time ago, and that's my own history. And you know, I was just I've been distracted by many things for many, many years. Um, these are not these are not unjustified killings of which I am unaware. Um, mm -hmm. I do believe this is different. Um, talk with us about perseverance and endurance and uh, tangible commitment to keeping our hand to the plow and not turning back. Yeah, I think one of the places that I have turned to and, and I'm really asking other Christians and particularly other Christians like me who are white in America, um, you know, to turn to the Bible and to look to that for guidance. So for me, one of the, one of the stories in the old Testament that for some time has really guided my approach to this is in Daniel chapter nine. And I would encourage people to go and read that story in Daniel chapter nine. Um, Daniel is praying and he he's in captivity and he's confessing the sins of his father. And here's what's interesting to me about the whole dynamic of this is, you know, we, we understand that Daniel was a, a young man, maybe a boy, when he was taken into captivity into Babylon. And, you know, as he lives this faithful, godly life in captivity, um, you know, he... You know, he's wondering why are we here? Why are what God? Why have you forsaken us in captivity? You know, why is Jerusalem desolate? And you know, in in a vision in a dream, he begins to understand that the Israel was in captivity because they had forsaken God, his his ancestors. Right, he's part of the royal family. You know, his fathers and grandfathers and great grandfathers had forsaken God and worshipped other gods and committed atrocities. And then Daniel prays, it's, you know, multiple verses long. He prays this long prayer of saying, we have sinned. He takes ownership of something that he wasn't even a part of personally. He takes ownership of the, the sins of his ancestors and makes it personal. 
And in out of that, actually, he begins to get clarity from an angel of, well, this is how long you're going to be in captivity as you know, because you have taken ownership of the sins of your countries, your people's past. Now you're going to be released from that. And I think that's one of the really hard things. And it's a starting point where more and more Christians in America, white Christians in America, particular, we have to find a way that we take personal ownership of the history of racism, um, the underlying ideologies that gave rise to that, and and confess that. And I think that's one of those really hard things, Carmen, that's going to have to be done. Yeah, I am. I am reading and watching and listening um, with fresh ears and fresh eyes. Um, and I think that is part of this. I also think that our willingness to um, be in very hard conversations, both with people older than us and people younger with us, and obviously people um, whose skin pigmentation and life experience is different than ours, uh, is critical. Um, it's awkward. It's painful. Um, but it has to happen. It has to happen. And so, yes. uh, Carl, thank you for uh, thank you for engaging us in this conversation today. You and I need to take a very brief break when we come back. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about what Minneapolis churches are doing. Um, let's uh, let's give people some hopeful vision of of how they might engage by simply looking at what other people are doing at Transform Minnesota. Again, you guys can follow all of this on Facebook at Transform MN, Transform Minnesota. .org. We'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Carl Nelson, who works with Transform Minnesota. Um, Carl, talk with us about what Minneapolis churches are doing. Um, give, give us some very, very tangible, practical ideas. Um, I've seen pictures. It looks like in many cases, all I need is a broom. Yeah. So the, you know, the days uh, right after George Floyd's death, when when some of the worst uh, rioting and looting took place, um, churches, thousands of volunteers from churches and from the community at large showed up and swept the streets and cleaned up, you know, glass and trash and garbage. And honestly, um, the the streets have been cleaned up very quickly. And right now what's happening mostly is um, trying to provide food resources. So in um, several of our neighborhoods, one of the things that happened, you know, hundreds of buildings uh, were burned and businesses burned and destroyed and shut down. And um, probably the, the most difficult is a number of big grocery stores were destroyed and looted. And so they're closed, some of them for several months. And so in um, you know, both North Minneapolis, the neighborhood where I live, uh, South Minneapolis on Lake Street, where the worst of the destruction took place, a number of churches and existing food shelves have expanded their um, food shelf operations. So the way that people can be involved is, um, honestly, there's a lot of volunteers already plugged in and supporting most of these places. If people want to volunteer, they really need to kind of come in through the channel of an existing church or uh, food shelf ministry or something else like that, um, you know, to to serve in the way that ministries on the ground actually need the help. So that's been really fun to see um, just hundreds, um, hundreds of volunteers, even thousands. And you know, I stopped by a church here in my neighborhood. Um, they were, ser- they've been serving, um, handing out grocery bags and they had served almost 500 people yesterday. 
um, and people are bringing in you know groceries. And really, what people need to start transitioning to doing is providing financial support to sustain this relief effort over the long term. All right, I am um, I am looking at a story map of food deserts in the Twin Cities. Um, specifically, if you just click in on food deserts in the city of Minneapolis, there are an extraordinary number of low-income households who um, do not live in any sort of easy proximity to a grocery store. Um, and when we talk about grocery store, that's a pretty wide definition. Um, even fewer who live with direct access to what you and I would consider really healthy food, um, you know, that's fresh fruits and vegetables. And uh, and so um, talk with us a little bit about that. I, I think that there are just a lot of people, Carl, who have a hard time imagining that Minnesota, which is such a such a producer of food, is um, uh, has uh, 1.6 million Minnesotans, uh, a third of the state's population, who actually lack easy access to healthy food um, and that. It you know it ranks seventh worst in the nation, in terms of its residents having uh, you know good grocery options. I think that's going to be yeah, a surprise. So what's happened? Yeah, what's happened right now is so if you think about a grocery store in an urban neighborhood, lots of people would come to that grocery store uh, by bus, and so for several days the public transportation was completely shut down. Um, grocery stores. Um, you know, were boarded up. I mean, my family, we had to travel out into a neighboring suburb to find a grocery store that was open. Now, many of those that weren't damaged have reopened, but uh, you take a, a large grocery store and what's happening right now is you're, we're having to kind of re, reproduce the entire food supply that would flow through that grocery store in a day. So if you think about a large grocery store, how many truckloads of fresh produce and milk and groceries might come into that store and be unloaded every day? And now churches are trying to replace that um, for a couple months um, while those stores get rebuilt. So... You know, here's an idea, um, Carl, and you guys, you know, you, you're the idea people. So just... I, you've probably already thought of this, but I'm just I'm going to just say it out loud to our listeners right now. Like, do you do you own a dairy um, um, and a milk truck? And if so, you know, what about just restarting the old fashioned milk truck? And, you know, and what about getting eggs into communities through direct distribution? Like I, it, it makes me a little crazy that distribution is the issue in a nation where um, we have the greatest supply chain in the world. And so, um, you know, we don't lack food resources in this country. We lack um, adequate distribution of food resources. And so uh, if you want to reach out, you got an idea um, on how you're going to get things distributed more uh, more readily in the Twin Cities. Um, I feel confident that uh, that our friend Carl Nelson would be happy, 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 happy to think creatively about how to get those resources to the people uh, who are in greatest need. Am I speaking out of turn, Carl? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I want to tell people about one other response that's happening here in the Twin Cities that has been so encouraging. So about a, about two months ago, before this even happened, in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, we realized that a number of African-American churches were hit hardest by that. Pastors, you know, their their offerings dried up and pastors were going without pay. So several organizations got together and we created something called the One Fund, um, specifically to provide financial, emergency financial support to African-American churches who were disproportionately affected economically. 
Well, that need for that has actually increased um, in the last two weeks. And we have seen an outpouring of response of contributions to the one fund. And um, we have we, we actually have kind of uh, expanded our vision. Um, we're thinking one fund, one year, $1 million to support African-American churches here in our city. All right. I'm, uh, I'm tweeting that out. Uh, people can participate. And it's on our one... Facebook. You mentioned our Facebook yeah. page, and there's a link to it as well. Um, a number of organizations have come together to help set this up, and I can, I'm happy to say that um, we're, we're just over $100,000 already raised for that. Our goal is to hit um, 200000 by the end of July, and by the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death, we want to raise a million dollars for African-American churches in our city. All right, you guys can jump on to Facebook right now uh, at TransformMN, the the fresh post. The One Fund exists to support the work of local, local African-American churches and ministries whose communities due to historic inequities are disproportionately impacted by the recent crisis in the Twin Cities. Um, on and on there, you can read the whole article and you can jump in and participate in The One Fund. Carl Nelson, thanks so much for joining us today and what you're doing every day to transform Minnesota. Thank you. Great to be with you today great to have you. We'll be right back. All right, we got another hour up next. Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.